Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at verdantearthseducators.com. This podcast is being recorded on October 27th. 2023. Ari Miller is the Director of Design at Hinge Collective in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a public interest design firm that puts community engagement and public participation at the forefront of their practice. As both a landscape architect and arborist, Ari has always advocated for the integration and restoration of natural systems in urban design. Over the course of his 17-year career, Ari has worked as an arborist at Morris Arboretum, as a green roof design specialist at Roof Meadow, and has also led large-scale civic design projects at Olin Partners. At Hinge, he uses his experience to help communities find design solutions that best support human and ecological health in their own neighborhoods through the enhancement of public space and community-led planning. Some notable projects include the Philly Tree Plan, Resilient Community Stormwater Initiative, Unity Park, and Frankfurt Paws Park. Ari has also been adjunct faculty at the Weizmann School of Design at the University of Pennsylvania and Jefferson University. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Ari. We're delighted that you could be with us today. That's great to be here. Well, we want to start out by finding out about the Hinge Collective. How did it get started? Your background... And also, how did you put this whole company together with your know-how? Sure. So uh, Hinge Collective was started in 2007 by Alexa Bossi, who is my uh, business partner and um, also my my wife and uh, mother of our twin twin eleven year olds. And you know, she started the business because you know she she's always been really drawn to sustainable design in particular, but also. 
a design that lifts up communities and puts communities at the forefront of design decision-making and have been doing a lot of work in the pro bono sphere. And so she started the business to, to see if we could turn that into you know, a real business. There was a gap there. You know, A lot of the community-engaged design work was happening in that pro, pro bono sphere. And I think it's really wonderful that that exists. But to some degree, you do kind of get what you pay for in the sense that... In, you know, unless there's real investment behind it, you know, it, it's always going to be sort of relegated to the fringes. And so sort of going out on a limb, trying to see if we could bring that type of design into a more mainstream place. And I think that I think that we've done that in the last... 12 years or 13 <laughs> years, something like that? Uh, has it hasn't been quite that long. Oh, no, it was 2017. 2017, not 2007. Oh, so okay. yeah, we, we've only been around for uh, about seven years now. Okay. And you know... It's great when people say, I need a design done, and you go out and you look at a site. But the idea of getting people involved in a charrette, people giving their opinions, people who see things that you might not see or the next designer might not see, really lends itself well to the overall totality of the design when it's done. And it actually makes the designer better, but it also makes the whole community better because everybody's involved. So how do you get that process started when when you when you started the Philly tree plan how did you get that initial charrette off the ground That that's a very it's a very long answer to that we did it in a in a number of ways I can dive right into the to the process for the Philly tree plan if you like or yes. or we can um, okay we started with a really great request for proposal from the city of Philadelphia. Uh, Erica Smith-Fitchman is the... Erica Fitchman? Yeah, yeah, you're right. She's the dire no, director of community forestry, I think, is what her title is. And uh, she really worked within the city to put within her own city structure to pull together a really wonderful team and, and craft a really thoughtful request for proposal that put community engagement at the forefront of that project. And so we really started ahead, I should, I, I would say. Mm -hmm. She also put together what we called the Community Voices Steering Committee, which was a group of folks that were engaged, particularly around tree planting at diff in different neighborhoods across the entire city. And they were really sort of our, our North Star, and we checked everything through with them. We checked our engagement strategy through with them. They participated in even sort of the, the graphic presence, uh, the logo, the identity of, of the project. They also were part of determining what factors we used for doing priority mapping. So we worked with them to develop a priority map that layered up a number of different factors pulled from publicly available GIS data, both from the city, state, and federal government around heat, determinants of health, poverty. We did not use race or gun violence in those data layers, partially because we could show that a lot of those, the other factors that we know trees can can help mitigate. It was already sort of overlaid with race and, and gun violence and other and other issues. So you know we know that there's sort of this this pileup of of issues that happens in places that have low tree canopy. And so through that we were able to develop a priority map that we then used as a guide for where the focus of the community engagements should be and really where the focus of the energy of the tree plan should be. Like these are the places that need tree canopy the most, where we can really affect health outcomes. We can really affect quality of life outcomes. And so that's that's where our tree canopy needs to be. It needs to be all over the city. And to be clear, the tree plan is a whole city plan and it has strategies for the entire city. 
but it's a strategic plan. So, you know, part of the strategy is focusing energy to affect the places that need it the most. And so from that point, we recruited 20 plus, we called them neighborhood ambassadors. They were ambassadors to their neighborhood. They weren't proselytizing for trees to their community. There's lots of people doing that, doing great work, you know, proselytizing for trees. But these folks were were bringing bringing back the perspectives from their own neighborhoods and bringing those perspectives to the plan. And you know, what wasn't at all a surprise to us was that a lot of those folks from different areas had different issues. You know, there were different pain points. Um, there were different concerns. And so, you know, it was pretty clear that this can't be a blanket approach plan. It needs to be more focused on the specific specific issues of the micro regions of, of each of the neighborhoods. You had actually had help from Erica to create this web of connectivity to bring everything back into the center and to actually analyze everything, which doesn't always happen. And I think that that's a really good thing. So, yeah, I just I just think it's fabulous that you were able to do that. I'm familiar with the plan, uh, Ari, you and I have talked about it off mic a few times. And what I'm starting to realize is how different it is from an urban forestry plan where the mm-hmm. consultant is hired, they put their values into the plan and present it to the, their community or municipality with a varied amount of input. And what makes the Philly tree plan so different is that community input really almost led the the initiative, right? Yeah, that's correct. That is, as Hal said, you, you only get like one thought from the one person or the few people that are putting the plan together and then presenting it like it's on a on a plate rather than having that plate anchored into the ground by the by the people who live in that community. So where the rubber meets the road, air quotes, <laughs> what's next, Ari? In terms of Im- implementation of this marvelous work that hopefully other cities will take note of and, and take the best parts of it for their own cities. So at the back of the plan, there's there's an implementation matrix that outlines the long, mid, and short-term goals for the plan. And uh, among the short-term goals is gearing up for taking better care of our trees. So the first step that that we know that we need to do is rebuild trust within communities that have some of the lowest tree canopy because a lot of those places have had their trees neglected and there's not a lot of faith that new trees will be cared for. And so we need to rebuild rebuild the trust in those communities before we can start replanting the canopy there. And that might actually mean that some of our canopy goes down a little bit. You know, we have some hazardous trees. We have some trees in back alleys, some gigantic ailanthus and polonias that are causing people a great deal of stress. And we may need to actually remove some of those before we can put some of the the type of canopy that is uh, more sustainable and community supported on the streets in the places where we're shading our hard surfaces and providing them the most ecosystem services. You know, we, we want the trees where people are, not in neglected back alleys or vacant lots where those trees are, are actually contributing to a, a sense of dereliction or, you know, a symbol of um, neglect. Sure. So the, the trees that, that should be part of the new urban forest, if it's going to be a sustainable and, you know, 100-year urban forest, needs to be in the places where people want them, in the places where people see them as an asset and where they, they're contributing to the overall quality of life. I have noticed uh, something went out as an RFP earlier in the year soliciting for tree contractors to bid on taking out 
the Alley, Polonia, and Ilanthus. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are extraordinarily complicated jobs. But do you think that there's going to be some funding to support that? Because um, they tend to be labor intensive and very expensive because of minimal access for equipment. Yes. I can't point to a specific source of funding at the moment, but I do know that that's being sought. Um, yeah. And the other thing that, that's going hand in hand with that is those are the kinds of jobs that sort of smaller crews can do sometimes, you know, unless it requires a crane or something like that. But, you know, yeah, I've, I've worked on tree crews and carried a whole tree through somebody's house before. <laughs> sometimes a small crew is better for that. Yes. So, you know, working on workforce development is another really significant part of the plan and building up that local workforce. You know, it's those of us who have worked on tree crews know how much space it takes when you're back at the yard, how much space you need for logs and wood chips and chip trucks and all that equipment that's very space intensive and space is expensive in the city. It's it's hard to get tree crews to be inside the city. That's something that we are that, that the tree plan is is looking to tackle and find solutions for. And also if it is a business that is outside the city and they're working inside the city, how many people are they hiring locally? Are they working directly with the workforce development programs like PowerCore PHL to hire from their programs? I know that Asplund has been has been doing some of that, which is really wonderful. But yeah, also just can we build up the small business workforce inside the city or just outside the city that, that does most of the work? Um, yeah. Ari just mentioned cranes and the industry has become extremely crane dependent with skilled workers and uh, the International Society of Arboriculture uh, promoting crane safety and crane use. Mm. So Philadelphia, with its row house architecture throughout the older neighborhoods, it would, in all likelihood, I'm looking at these jobs or envisioning a Polonia that I looked at several years ago that absolutely had to be done with a crane or no other way. And it yeah. would have been all the cars get cleared out of the north-south street, yeah. the cranes gets situated in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. And once that setup is done, then you're you're moving fairly, well, extremely efficiently in terms of economy of scale towards getting a Polonia out that will, they'll, they're so aggressive, as we know, with their growth pattern, they'll actually have a leader of a tree resting on the roof yeah. of a house. <laughs> yeah. And that is very yeah. unsettling. Yeah. Uh-huh. It is very yeah. unsettling. I mean, that's yeah. what they use as a as an indicator for takedowns. Uh, if it's a Polonius in the in the chimney, yeah, roots in the basement. Well, <laughs> and and structural damage just from the yeah. sheer weight on the roof. Yeah. So things can fall apart even if you're carefully lifting a leader up. So mm-hmm. all you contractors listening, I hope we're not scaring you away. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, from what I think is going to come from this plan, is a lot of new strategies, maybe new types of equipment, maybe new types of ways to talk with clients and around clients and in communities where you have a different type of attitude when you go in. It's not just, you know, an ego leading the the plan. It's the people leading the plan. And I think that that's really critical for a successful uh, city tree plan. We have been contacted by you know a number of other cities that are starting to undertake their either an update to their strategic urban forestry strategic plan or, or starting one from scratch. We've helped them sort of walk them through what it is that that we did. 
And I, I do think I, I do think that it is being looked at as a model for how to do community engagement with respect to urban forestry planning. But you know, every every city is every city is different. And so they, everybody has to kind of look at what do they have now? You know, what do they have now in terms of planning or ordinances or code? You know, what do they have now with respect to their demographics and also like space? You know, do, is there space for trees? Like what are the attitudes, attitudes towards trees? So there's, there's definitely not a one size fits all approach. Right. And, and we're not, you know, we're not the only folks who attempted a, a community-led urban forestry strategic planning. And I'm hopeful, optimistic that all these kinds of planning efforts are moving towards a more grassroots or community-led approach to planning in general. It's incredibly challenging to take a multitude of voices and turn it into sort of a singular vision. But I think there's so much of the work that we do that is like documenting and, and pulling out and bringing to light that isn't necessarily what I would call planning. It's not really action-oriented. It's like revealing. It's, it's sort of like an extreme type of social ecology analysis, you know, being able to, to pull that out in the same way that, you know, Ian McHarg, famous landscape architect, you know, was talking about designing with nature. I think that we need to design with people and design with with the social infrastructure that is there and not always respected or within the design community. But I, I am hopeful that that is getting better. You know, just like with the environmental sustainable design movement, you have practitioners that are really doing it. And then you have practitioners that really look like they're doing it. Uh, <laughs> and, and sometimes the people who really look like they're doing it think they're also really doing it. But, you know, the proof sort of ends up being in the pudding as to... I was just going to say in the pudding. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> Yeah, hopefully we can empower communities to be able to speak up and show when plans are for them or or when they feel like they weren't actually heard. And I hope that the, the communities that we work with would do that to us and that we make space for that if we ever sort of guide the process away from what it is that they're hoping for. So that's an open invitation for, for anybody that we worked with to um, give us good constructive criticism. We're very fortunate here in Philadelphia that we have institutions that have been promoting tree planting at a very early time period in the 1970s when, you know, people weren't trying to plant trees here. That was kind of hands off. And, and I think the institutions within, within a community or within a city are ones that can actually help scaffold and support a program like you've created or the plan that you've created. And I think that that's something critical that should be looked at too. Have you thought about that in any way about, you know, the institutions that are around? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that probably one of the most significant parts of the plan is coordinating that incredible network of support that already exists in Philly. You know, Pennsylvania Horticultural Society is nationally recognized for the work that they've been doing. The Tree Tenders program is a really incredible kind of unprecedented program. And it's the backbone of, of the plan. You know, it's talking about how do we do this same work but better and all move in the same direction. And, you know, uh, PHS, Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, was was incredible partners. They were, were incredible partners. Um, Tim Eiffel was very much a part of the plan. And Tree Philly, you know, Erica Smith-Fitchman and, right. and um, uh, Marissa Wilson definitely both deserve uh, a, a lot of kudos for the work that they've been doing. You know, real genuine community engagement within all of Philly's neighborhoods to understand what the pressures are and, and bring trees to them in the way that they want trees brought to them. And this is really, the, the tree plan is really building on, on the work that they've already been doing and sort of putting it all on, on paper. 
Yeah, we attended that Canopy Conference last week, and I think, Ari, you'll agree, the energy was really good. And the sense we're all kind of speaking the same language, pulling on the same oar, moving. And the institution that supports that is uh, the Morris Arboretum. And, you know, with its professional uh, advancement coursework as well, it just kind of expands the brain trust. The Philly Tree Plan, in a sense, the work that Hinge did, did result in a government amount of money of, of about $12 million. What was your reaction when you heard that that money was coming through? You know, I was elated that, that that money came through. It means that there is going to be real action towards the the goals of the plan. You know, but also it's still not enough. It's like kind of it's kind of not enough. And and you know, we do we do have numbers in the plan that are a little bit they they seem scary when you look at what the past funding has been for I would call it urban forestry writ large, not just tree planting. Yeah. But if you compare it to other cities. It's not that crazy. Mm. If you compare it to past funding levels of parks and recreation, it's not that crazy. Oh my. So, I mean, we have we've seen over the last 40, 50 years a really significant decline in the funding for our public open spaces and for, you know, parks and recreation operations as a whole, and that's really contributed to a lot of the distrust that we are we were working against and we continue to work against as we're trying to to grow the, the, the next generation of the urban forest. The so, distrust was coming from how? Uh, dis- distrust was coming from, you know, you're going to give me this tree and then it's my responsibility, which is, which is true, and that there's no support for me here. And you're putting the, the cost of maintaining an infrastructure, you know, our green infrastructure, our ecosystem services on my back, the person who has the least amount of ability to pay for this, but it, somehow it's my responsibility to pay for this, and it you know it, it doesn't feel fair because um, it because to be honest it isn't fair. And, and meanwhile, there's lots of trees growing up in places where trees are are growing through chimneys or the sides of factories next to my house, you know, abandoned factories next to my house, or in abandoned lots, or even out of the sidewalk, or, or even the tree that somebody did plant a hundred years ago that's completely lifted my sidewalk. So you know, we heard that over and over again, and so it's trees. In the park are, are our friends. Trees on the street are sometimes not always a friend. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's a, it, it feels like a looming threat. And so a lot of the tree plan is about removing that threat or, or perception of threat. So Yeah, I was going to say that since we've looked at trees as part of infrastructure, yes. we've now changed the paradigm. Before they were a nicety. Yeah. And now it's essential. So once something is essential, and look, we have huge pipes in the ground that break all the time, and you know there's a water everywhere. Well, it's very much you know the trees are part of that system now. They're part of the electrical grid. They're part of the the streets and how they get repaired because they've been put in that regard. They're going to be looked at in a different way, and I think that that's going to make a huge difference too. Yeah. I really feel that that has already made a shift in a lot of people's thought process, especially with GIS and, you know, drone photos of flying over the city and what people see and what their inventory is. You know, I kind of liken it to, you know, companies that say their biggest expense is their employees, but their greatest asset is their employees. Mm -hmm. It's not the expense. It's the asset because they're making the product. And it's the same thing. The tree is helping the community health-wise and everything else. 
Yeah, as, as our, our mutual friend and the uh, city forester of Wilmington, Delaware, uh, Herb White would say, trees are in everything. He was also a collaborator on the, on the Philly tree plan. But it's, it's true. It's, it's part of the electrical grid in the sense that it reduces our power load and need for cooling in particular. It's part of our stormwater infrastructure. It's part of our public health infrastructure. It's like one of the only things that, that checks off practically every single box. But maybe because it is so broad, it's not seen as critical infrastructure because it's so hard to, to say, oh, it's, it's definitely this. It's doing just this. And so I think that if we can shift to thinking about green infrastructure as critical public health infrastructure, you know, that's where that's where the money actually is, isn't like public, right. isn't, isn't healthcare and like public health. It's in healthcare. It's in yeah, healthcare. And, and the Urban Health Lab at University of Pennsylvania is recognizing right. that, the, the incredible work of Dr. South documenting that and Michelle Kondo and Laura Roman, you know, all of that. They, they were able to, to, to show through, you know, studies through projection that we could, you know, save over 400 lives a year if we were able to reach a, a 30% canopy cover. That's why we use the 30% canopy cover. The benefits of it were so well studied. There was a question in the, um, or a comment, I should say, in the, the Tree Canopy Conference. So at the Tree Canopy Conference that, that we were just at, there were some comments about, why are we using a percent canopy cover? That's not actually a very useful measure, or it's a misleading measure. You know, are we, you know, when we're talking about, you know, X number of stems in the ground, like, are you also thinking about how we're caring for those trees? And one of our biggest concerns about the tree plan was that the headline would be, you know, 30% canopy cover in 10 years, X number of dollars a year to get there. And the X number of dollar years to get there is, doesn't worry me. But I, I was hoping for is that we could save 400 lives a year if we spent this much, this much money per year. And we can get this much of an economic engine if we spent this much money a year. So it's, it's, a, it's a significant return on investment. It's not a pouring money into something that's nice. It's investing in our public health infrastructure that has a return on investment unlike any other investment in infrastructure. I'm still hopeful that that, that could be the, that can be the headline, not get to 30% canopy cover, because that is sort of a blunt instrument. You know, are we getting to 30% canopy cover as an average? Is that saving 400 lives or is it 30% canopy cover? It's 30% canopy cover in every neighborhood, which is a much taller order than getting a 30% canopy cover as an average. Citywide, yeah. Yeah, because there's some places in the city where we have 60%, 40%. And the thing is that how much do we value a human life? Right. Well, that's people do put numbers on it, but... <laughs> I mean, even if you valued every person at a million dollars, that's $400 million a year, yeah. you're losing yeah. as an asset yeah. to your city. Yeah. And people don't look at humans as assets. Yeah. They look at them as expenses. Mm -hmm. And I, I hate that. It just drives me crazy. I sometimes wake up in the middle of the night thinking about that. You know, how, where did we get to the point where we look at humans as the negative rather than the positive? And it's a human that's created it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of strange. <laughs> but I think that's a really good point. And also, the idea that you have the data to back that up, Ari, I mm -hmm. think that that really is crucial for, for what you're talking about. You know, as we talk, Ari, I'm remembering, correct me if I'm wrong, that you kind of got your start as a climbing arborist, right? Can you yeah. talk about your uh, career path, so to speak? Yes, my very circuitous, but still within a narrow uh, <laughs> field. Yeah. 
Not easy to do. Well done. No, no. So uh, I, I, I do. I'm a bachelor's science in landscape architecture from University of Massachusetts. I was interested in landscape architecture at the age of 16 when I was introduced to it at the WB Saul High School here in Philadelphia, which I will always uh, sing the praises of at any chance I can. It's an agricultural vocational high school. We had a landscape design course, and I was like, "Oh, this is a this is a thing I can do." I, I already spent most of my time in the Wissahickon. Trees were already my friends. And so, you know, being able to combine, you know, my love of plants and my creative side seemed like a perfect, a perfect combination. So I got my bachelor's in the summers. I would come home and was a seasonal worker at Morris Arboretum, which I also completely fell in love with, both the the, the people there and the space. On my lunch hours, I would kind of badger the arborist because I was pretty interested in getting high up in some of those trees to teach me how to do some do some climbing. And when I graduated, I was uh, offered the arborist internship. And I was like, well, what's a year off from pursuing landscape architecture? I'll just go <laughs> climb trees for just, it'll just be one year. One year turned into three years. So I, I did the, the internship and I stayed on for another about a year and a half and then decided I really needed to pursue my, my landscape architecture career, but didn't have a job lined up and just was freelance climbing for a little while. So I got to see both the public garden side and the, um, the commercial side of arboriculture. I much prefer the, much prefer the public garden side. I, who knows? If I had been making more money there, I probably would have stayed forever. Right. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I'm still like, can I just go back? Is there a way I could just maybe go back and do that again? One day a week or something. Yeah. No, I, I could do it. I could do it all the time. The yeah. winters, the winter's a tough time to be a climbing arborist. But then, um, you know, I, I actually started working at a civil engineering firm, my first desk job. So it went from, you know, 60 feet up in the canopy, all weather all the time to cubicle, who knows what the weather is outside. <laughs> yeah. You know? And that was, uh, <laughs> that was a, that was a shock. It was like a physical shock <laughs> that took a little while to get over. And, um, but then I, I eventually found, I, I found my people in Tavis Dockwiller and, and Susanna Viridian. Fabri. Yeah, Viridian, Susanna Fabri. Um, yeah. You know, they were definitely my people and showed me what it means to be a landscape architect. I still sure. consider, consider Tavis to be my, my primary mentor in, in the field. You know, from there, I, I ended up, I bounced around to a number of offices. I also worked at my, my dad's office for a little while, which was called Roof Meadow at the time, designing uh, green roofs. I think could be credited as the first green roof company in the U.S. Designed Chicago City Hall and um, the Pico building and first green roof in the U.S., I think. First like functioning stormwater green roof uh, was on the Fencing Academy here in West Philly. So that was fun for a little while. And then uh, eventually found my way to Olin and worked there for a while. Did some really incredible large-scale projects and before Alexa pulled me into this crazy ride that we're on now. It's funny that Jason Lubar yeah. from the Morris Arboretum and you both started out as seasonal workers. <laughs> I didn't know that about Jason. Yeah, yeah. In the mid '80s, he was a guy just on a weed whacker. Yeah, he already had uh, a business degree from Temple. Right. But he was, yeah, just uh, one of the the crew out there. And then when you were at the Morris Arboretum, was Herb White the arborist? Is that who Her, you? Were? Herb White was the, yes. He was, he was the he was the arborist. Okay. And yeah, Jason Lu, Jason Lubar was there. He was a significant contributing voice to the tree plant as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I actually just learned that Paul Meyer passed at this last can. Yes, I didn't. Did. I didn't know about that. I've been following him on uh, on Facebook and his incredible travels. And now I, yes, I, I guess I know why he was taking all those trips. 
but it's very very sad to hear about that. Yeah, that was that was quite a loss. I don't even think he knew he was. He didn't know. He, he didn't know. He didn't know. Actually, he was supposed to do a, a trip with the International Dendrology Society, which I belong to, and he canceled the trip once he found out how bad mm-hmm. he was, and it's a shame. And it's you know it's a big hole in the city. It is. He would always make me infinitely jealous, though. I would, his presentations were both. If you've if you've never had FOMO before, you go go to a go to a Paul Meyer presentation and see. They were wonderful. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like the things he got to do, I was like, this is yeah. this is what I want to do. Uh, <laughs> how do I do this? I think only like six people in the world get to do what he got to do. So yeah. he he lived several lifetimes in his life for sure. He did. Oh yeah, absolutely. If we're going to have a Philly tree plan, or we do have a Philly tree plan, and of course that means the there's a political perspective to all this, and we have Always. this mayoral election coming up. Mm-hmm. Do you think our next mayor, whoever that may be, has <laughs> a bit of a green consciousness of sorts? Whoever that may be, uh, you mean of the two people running? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I, 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 it's pretty foregone conclusion who our next mayor is going to be, as it is yes. in not, Philadelphia. Not necessarily. Uh, well, I mean, you never know. <laughs> if I was a betting man, and I'm not. This would be well, the <laughs> for the purposes of this podcast. For the purposes of this podcast, okay. I, I am um, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about who our our very likely next mayor will be. She did not run on a green platform when others did. She did not have a position on the tree plan that was decisive or clear in the same way that some of the other candidates did. All of the candidates were pressed on their position on on the plan and and how they would support it or you know, what their what their thoughts were on it. And she was kind of absent on it. But I do believe that she is a leader that listens to the grassroots. And so that leaves me very hopeful. And I think that there are lots of folks within the neighborhoods that we talk to and continue to talk to that are really adamant about this idea of trees as critical public health infrastructure and are going to bring that issue as that issue, as a public health infrastructure issue. I think that she will be very receptive to that if it's if it is brought to her by the right people and in in the right context. And there's so many things that she did run on that are so totally aligned, you know, around her her commitment to education. Uh, parks, parks were yep. one of the things. So I mean, that's pretty close to trees. Very close to trees. And and I <laughs> and I think that the gun violence and you know litter, all those issues are are totally inextricably linked to greening in general. And it, it may actually help in a way to come at it from a a different perspective to say like come at it from a different angle like this is something that maybe you've been deprived of in the past and that you deserve which is what the Philly tree plans perspective is also it's not a you should want this because it's good for you it's more like you've been deprived of this mm. and this is something you deserve this is yes. this is a, a human right this is something that is part of the critical infrastructure that has missed you sometimes and so i think if if that's the message that it will be it will be heard and acted upon well, there you have it. You need to go to City Hall. <laughs> so you've already convinced me, see? I mean... My, my, my brain will just shut down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm eloquent in fits and spurts. So that's all you get. Well, one of the things that I just want to say is thank you for what you do. And thank you for leading such a plan. You know, having the plan have, what is it, 25,000 people involved in developing the plan from what I heard 
that's a lot of input and a lot of data to go through in order to come up with a plan that's written. It's a written document. It's now, I'm sure it's archived somewhere, maybe in the Library of Congress, (laughs) um, which it should be, which it should be. A lot of people don't think about that, but something like that should be in the Library of Congress. And, um, you know, will change the, the city forever. I hope, I hope so. I mean, it already has in some regards. You know, we have had some legislation that was passed that was in the right direction. Not quite as far as uh, or as sweeping as we would like to see, but um, we'll take baby steps. And uh, thank, you for, thank you for that. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate that. I will correct one thing about the numbers. I'd say we, we estimate about 9,000 9, folks participated, which was still pretty good. Also, um, yes. Okay. Yeah. And I had heard 25,000. I don't know awesome. where I you know, heard that from. I, I mean, I'm sure that many more participated than we documented, but we had about um, you know 7,000 plus survey responses and then hundreds of others through a community meeting tour that Marissa Wilson at Tree Philly Parks and Recreation did in in all of the priority areas and outside the priority areas as well, and you know all of the interviews that our ambassadors conducted. Um, so there were there were lots and lots of people that were consulted, but you know I'm sure there's still a long way to go. You know, I think that we got a good representative cross section of what the issues are, but that doesn't mean that that everybody is on board yet. And I, there's definitely a lot of work to do. Yeah, we're just a few weeks away here in Philadelphia from the late November tree planting yeah. weekend that you mentioned Pennsylvania Horticultural Society's Tree Tenders Program. And that's uh, trees that will be coming in bare root and planted not only in the city, but in uh, outlying suburban communities mm-hmm. as well. This is a question, Ari, in terms of scaling up. We've circled around to this before, is scaling up, planting larger numbers of trees on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. It seems like at some point that does go over to a, a private contractor or that, that it's work that might go out to bid since so much of it is going to mean cutting new sidewalks and preparing new tree pits, sourcing a larger number of trees. Does that cross your mind as well? Yeah, and I do think that especially planting bare root trees and doing establishment care is all things that small businesses can do. There's a really wonderful model that the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society has set up with their land care program where dozens of small landscaping companies exist almost solely to care for those land care lots. And that provides training, but it's building up the green jobs market here in Philadelphia and makes it a lot more accessible for small entrepreneurs to get businesses off the ground. And I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for that kind of homegrown, you know, taking it into the private sector, but not into the private sector, you know, mm-hmm. the, the gigantic company it doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, large companies doing the work. Ideally, it would be smaller companies doing that kind of work because they yeah. also need to do the establishment care too. And I don't, I don't think that that is something that large companies do well. You mm-hmm. know, as a landscape architect who has been on projects where we planted hundreds of trees, yeah, the more trees you plant, the higher, the higher the rate of mortality. So if you have a smaller number of people caring for a smaller number of trees, I think that the chance of survival will go significantly up. Yeah. I want to give a shout out here again to the tree tenders. Go to the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society's website, tree tenders, and you can find the schedule for 
tree planting in November for the city of Philadelphia. Yes. I think it's important that if people are interested, if they've never been involved, get involved Mm -hmm. because this is a great way to do it. It's a wonderful community of folks that all care about trees. I highly recommend it. Mindy Maslin is no longer teaching the tree tender courses, which is a bummer for you if you haven't if you haven't done it. But um, right. But there are I don't know who's teaching them. Is it Ashale? Ashale, okay. we just had her on. Oh, wonderful! Her. I love Ashale. Yeah. Okay. She's the edu- part of the education committee. Oh, that's great. So I just wanted to give them another shout out because you know it goes tandem with the Philly tree plan. That's great. Yes, become a tree tender. <laughs> yes, become a tree tender. Everybody become... Hal and I have been tree tenders for a very, very long time. <laughs> you had mentioned Dr. South from yeah. the University of Pennsylvania. And as we've had this conversation, it seems like getting back to data and overlays mm. that the work that her institution is doing is going to be really supplement or support everything that the Philly Tree Plan advocated for as well. Yes. Would you agree? I would I would 100% agree. Yeah. And yeah, I think that the work that she has been doing and the the, the crew at Deeply Rooted have been doing really remarkable work here in, in uh, West, Southwest, Cobbs Creek area. Right. I, I think it's imperative that we have the the data to back to back this up and that there are, you know, incredibly in, in, intelligent people who are really building a case that is undeniable about what the benefits are of bringing natural systems. Not, not I mean, trees are one of the easiest yeah. ways to do it. They're, they're one of the less space consumptive things in a place where space is at a premium. But, you know, just bringing our natural systems in general back into our urban spaces, it's, it's going to be imperative for our survival. Uh, or, and our ability to live in cities, which I, I love doing and will, will always do. Yes, I, the, the work that they're doing is is the backbone of, of everything else. It's interesting. She posted about a month ago on X, formerly known as Twitter, should I run for city council? Oh, yeah? <laughs> Asking her followers if... Uh... I, w- I mean, I would certainly vote for her, but I feel like what she's doing now and, oh, and yeah. is, is probably where she's most needed. Yeah. And oh, by the way, she's a trauma nurse as well. So. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Or a trauma uh, doctor. Yeah. Was uh, an ER doctor, right? No? Yes. She's not a nurse. Well, yeah. we have to ask our question. Okay. And you've been on before, Ari, yeah. a long time ago. So we have to ask you now, what is your favorite tree? <laughs> <laughs> I might change my answer. I don't know. I, that's yeah. right. That's why we were, that's what we're asking you. We're asking you now. Um, <laughs> Well, I remember his previous answer. He said it was the uh, red maple out front with the rope swing. <laughs> That's right. We're talking about particular the illegal trees. rope swing. It shush. <laughs> uh, don't tell the swing police. It will. Uh, they will make many children unhappy. Yeah, if that swing oh goes my away. My students found one the other day. By the way, while we were on a class tour, nice. they found one and they were swinging it back. Yeah, I love swings. Swings are one of my. And these are adults. Oh yeah, oh, we get we get a lot of adults. You know, sometimes uh, in the middle of the day, or actually, even, or worse, late at night, it's actually it's still fine. We just like hear like uproarious shrieks of joy and laughter, and I'm like, oh, I got some drunk adults on the swing again. Um, but yes, I love I love I love my red maple. But I think I I may have also mentioned beech trees, which I do love, and are not really great city trees. And I've been like really worried about beech leaf disease. It's, I've been keeping me up at night. That's what that's what keeping me. That's what keeps arborists yeah. up at night. And that's what keeps yeah. you up. Well, I mean that and, my, and many other things. Maybe every other every every other 
you know, three or four nights, I think about beach sleep disease. I do love the London Plains in West Philly because I feel like they define this neighborhood. But they are kind of tearing everything apart. They're they're like, no, this is forest, which you know I, I do appreciate to it to a to a certain degree. But they need to we need to find trees that play nicer. I love swamp whites in the city. I'll just say that swamp whites and uh, uh, shingle oaks, which you don't see a lot of in the city either. But no, you we don't. have a couple on our street here that I think are Imbricaria. Yeah, they're really cool and. Um, they're great. They're, they have a like perfect little pyramidal shape and like stay away from the wires. Like I, I'm, I'm, yeah. di- I'm digging on the, on the shingle oaks lately. Yeah, I have been too. And uh, I think Eva, didn't you say they're uh, in the red oak family? So they might be victim to uh, bacterial oh, really? leaf scorch. They, they are. Yeah. They are victimized. We, we, we found it in one of our studies that we were doing a temple. Oh, uh, the students, we went to this tree and I said, oh my gosh, this is a shingle oak. Look, it's got leaf scorch. Oh. Where not more things to stress me out, Eva. Don't do that to me. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but hey, there, you know, there's other there's other trees that are doing okay, yeah. like taxidermies and oh yeah, metasequoias yeah. and we have a our, and those and calorie pears. <laughs> got lots of those. <laughs> we got lots of those. Um, I'm not. I'm not. Perf- I'm not promoting no. this. <laughs> there's a uh, our neighbor planted a. Uh, Met a sequoia in the street, and I'm. It's. Uh, it was like. It was like this big, and then it grew a little bit more, and now it's like year three. It's ten feet tall. <laughs> yeah, I, I I planted one for Morris Arboretum in my parents' front yard when I was working there, and it is now I want to say fifty feet tall. It's. It wants crazy. to be here. It does. Yeah. It wants to own own this land. <laughs> Don't laugh, but I have a, a a cutting that I had from. Temple when they cut theirs down, it was original mm. from the collection from uh, from Morris, yeah. and um, I have a, the cutting now, which is about eight feet tall in a pot yeah. on my wrought iron table. Yeah. It's anchored down, yeah. and I love it because right now it's that beautiful orangey. Yeah. And it'll be it'll be sixteen feet tall color. next year. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, this is my bone top <laughs> in a big container. <laughs> So, well, thank you so much for being on oh, our my pleasure. podcast and talking about the Philly tree plan. And, you know, Hal, Hal and I had lots of questions and you've answered some of them. <laughs> some of them. Yeah. Your conver- the conversation, and you know, it, it does give me great hope. It does make me hope that Philly is also under the urban forestry spotlight. Like, yeah. okay, we have a great tree plan. We have our educational institutions supporting the Philly tree plan and the city with data. We have a little chunk of money here. How far are we going to take it, you know, Mm -hmm. and will it open the doors for more funding? Because you Mm -hmm. clearly, I haven't been looking at budgets from other cities lately, but I I am aware that per capita, it's substantially more in in other urban centers. So I hope it opens the floodgates for more funding because, uh, 30% 30% is hanging out there. And I think I might have mentioned to you last week, Ari, uh, I w- jumped onto a, a Zoom seminar uh, coming out of Toronto. And if I heard it right, Toronto, the, the the speakers there a couple times reiterated, we've hit our canopy goals. You know, we've, we're now moving beyond the threshold that we set for ourselves. So it can be done, you know. Canadians are much more communally minded people. 
<laughs> That's been coming up a little bit too. <laughs> we'll do it here too. It's the city of brotherly That's love. Right. <laughs> well, thanks again. Yeah, thanks again, Ari. Yeah. Take care. Great to get your insights. Yes, thanks yeah. for having me. Okay. Be well. Bye bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.